2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Uh, let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my co-host is Robert and tonight we're going to talk about the HBO extravaganza film Fahrenheit 451. It's based on the Ray Bradbury book of the same title and this is episode 79 of the podcast. You can find the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 79. Let's say hello to Robert before we get into the Last Nighters version of the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Last Nighters and the... Wait a minute. Is this the Last Nighters? Is that what we're doing? We're just straight up going on to The Last Nighters? Well, not not just yet. This is still the actual anarchy, folks. This is the cool kids. Okay. That's what I thought. I, for some reason, I thought you said Last Nighters, but that's fine. Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. I'm pumped. I'm juiced. Ready to talk about the, an HBO... Did HBO buy this movie, or did they just make it? But whatever. It was, you know... Some sort of HBO exclusive, so there you go. Everybody can watch it. All right, well, let's drift off into normie-friendly zone and get into the Last Nighters, and that will be lastnighters.com slash 22. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters. Thank you for joining us once again. It's episode 22 of the show, and the show notes and more can be found at lastnighters.com slash 22. We're also on the iTunes and the Google Play Music, and the podcast lives at anchor.fm slash lastnighters. And the show notes for this episode will be found at lastnighters.com slash 22. I think I've been redundant. I think I've said that two or three times now. But we're going to talk about four, Fahrenheit 451 tonight, the HBO produced film that has uh, just been released and it is an interesting uh, concept it's it's based on a Ray Bradbury novel and they've uh, tried to adapt it into a film I don't know how successful it's really uh, turned out here but Robert and I are going get to get into it uh, and start off with the Google description in just a moment but how are you doing Robert oh man I'm great thanks for having me on the show it's a real pleasure to be here um, I look forward to having an interesting discussion with you sir as we discuss this movie film show entertainment all right well thank you for for being a friend and for being my guest tonight as a co-host like you are on every show so i appreciate you and uh, also some news some news uh the last nighters is is part of a uh, group of podcasters podcasters called the libertarian union and a uh a guy that we respect and follow uh his show he's tom woods and he does the Tom Woods show. He did a tweet today of our uh, Libertarian Union group, and so we uh, were able to get a little bit of pub- publicity for that. So you can look for that at uh, libertarianunion.com. Uh, we are uh, very happy to be a part of that, and uh, recommend if you want to find other shows that are uh, about such topics as music, libertarianism, legal theory, and more. Uh, do check that out at libertarianunion.com. Please do. It's a great, great site, great repository for all sorts of. Fantastic entertainment slash edutainment. Zing. All right. So let's do the Google description. Fahrenheit 451 came out May the 12th. So just a couple weeks ago on the HBO drama science fiction film hour and 40 minutes. 35% Rotten Tomatoes guaranteed not fresh. Uh, 4.9 on the IMDb. Two out of four on the RogerEbert.com. Though I think he's been dead for a while. So somebody, whoever's running that, two out of four. And 69% 
of Google users like it. The description reads as thus, in a future society where books are banned and burned, a fireman begins to read in secret and discovers an underground rebellion committed to protecting literature. Directed by Ramin Barani and adapted from the uh, novel Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, production company Hbo Films. What do you think, Robert? I like the idea that uh, Roger Ebert's corpse is just like, meh, about this movie. That's what I like to think about it. I, I, you know, this movie felt like a kind of a low budget production, um, but it seemed, and I, full disclosure here, I haven't seen any previous versions of this movie, and I'm only, you know, tangentially or peripherally aware of the story. Like, I was, I'm familiar with the story, but I've never actually read the book or seen any of the movies. I just know that it's about, you know, a group of people called firefighters who go around burning books, and I think... There are far more interesting details in the story, but they felt like very modern details. So I don't know how much modernization was done to the story or how timeless the original story was. But I was still entertained, but it did feel very much like a not a complete movie, more like a made-for-TV kind of a movie. Almost like, you know, like an after-school special slash HBO movie, kind of somewhere in the middle. Not not the greatest quality. Although, although Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon are, you know, decent actors. Um Definitely not like C-list guys, but the production seemed a little on the little on the lower side. Still, still decent though. I don't know what what did you what did you think of that, Daniel? Yeah, I kind of got that feel for it for it as well. Like it seemed a little bit cheesy. And Michael B. Jordan, I don't know what else he's been in that I, I'm familiar with, but he seemed rather wooden in this. And Michael Shannon, you know, I, I just kept seeing Zod from Man of Steel, and uh, so. I kept, you know, thinking of of him as Neil before Zod and all of that. But in general, yeah, it did have kind of this, um, like a very small feel to it. And I think they were trying to make it have a larger feel. But they had like limited production dollars available to them or something like that. So it did feel a little bit chintzy, a little cheesy. And I think that this is also a difficult project to put on a screen, I think. Probably, probably. I imagine that the the book didn't quite follow the, the, the script of the movie quite exactly. Or vice versa. Um, just to reiterate your point, though, um, it did feel like they probably stretched the budget quite a bit. And I'm guessing that the, the actors and the whole crew didn't have a whole lot of time to work on this movie. Because, yeah, the, the, the actors didn't seem like they were really... There wasn't a whole lot of nuance to the performances. Like you're saying that Jordan seemed wooden. I would agree. There wasn't a whole lot of character for him to work with. There wasn't a lot of character for Shannon to work with either. He was just kind of a one-note guy. I mean, there was a little bit of emotional play there in that Shannon was, you know, he was all about burning books, but then he also had a little bit to his character in that he wrote down like these forbidden ideas and thoughts, and then he would also, you know, burn them. But then he also had, you know, cared a lot about loyalty and, you know, I'm going to burn in hell with my brother instead of not burn in hell, I guess, or whatever he said. So there was some interesting character stuff. But it didn't seem like the actors had a lot to prepare or time to prepare or for whatever reason, it just didn't seem it didn't seem like a full movie. It seemed like a made for TV movie, the kind of movie that they'd have, like, you know, you show up on set one day. OK, what's the script? OK, maybe you had like two days to read the script and then you're going and then, you know, you, you kind of go, OK, I got to be angry in the scene. OK, I'll be angry. And then, OK, I'm going to be a little bit sad in the scene. OK, I'll be sad. But it didn't seem like. They really knew these characters, and these characters lived and breathed, and, you know, it didn't feel like that. But, you know, for what it was, it was still still, it was still okay. Yeah, and it, it also seemed like this is a dystopian film, and I know Bradbury, he's not quite as the um, at the level of, say, Orwell or Huxley, as far as, like, top of mind when it comes to dystopian novels. But he does carry a lot of the similar themes, right? The calling something other than what it is, and then eventually that becomes the thing that it's known for, the example being firemen. And the big or you know, the big uh, uh, deal in this is that the real history of firemen was they were putting out fires, but now they all believe that they're the ones going out using fire to destroy things that are going to subvert their uniform culture. Which, which just leads me to ask the question, who, who does put out fires in this world? I imagine there are still fires and they still need to be extinguished. And what do you call them? But, of course, you know, the movie and the story, I don't think, probably, it doesn't address that. Yeah, and these guys are essentially, you know, like a SWAT team going around and just burning buildings down. So maybe they're actually more like the ATF and uh, the FBI, like with the Waco stuff. Sure. Yeah, and it made me wonder, 
why they drove around a big fire truck. They could just, you know, they they carry around these little flamethrowers that could fit in the trunk of a Porsche. So why don't they just like drive a van or something? But I guess, you know, your symbolic, the symbolic fireman truck. Kind of yeah, maybe, maybe it's full uh, of kerosene, you know? Yeah, there you go. You got to recharge the, the kerosene. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah, just in case they need a really big fire. Got a bunch of wrong thinkers. Yeah, so related to that, um, I know that the novel predates another film that we've done in the past called Equilibrium, which I like better than this film. And it has a very similar concept where you take any art, any culture, and you destroy it. And you sort of create this utopian uniformity uh, to control people. And I I, I think they did a better job of it in Equilibrium. But they also had like the gun kata, you know, the fighting going on. that was a lot more interesting than I think that the, you know, the story here was where, you know, they had a fist fight in in the fireman's lounge or whatever. But I mean, that was pretty much all the action. Yeah, there was very little. I mean, they established that Michael Jordan could fight pretty well and he does it one time and then then that's it so yeah and usually you're setting up you know early in a film you're setting up okay this is foreshadowing what this character is capable of we're going to show you something that he's going to use later and he really never did yeah he did it one time when they raided some people's house to uh burn a bunch of internet computers and stuff and he like tangles with one guy in a room and the guy has a knife and he's like defending himself and george's just like yeah come on but then that was it yeah you're right i mean there's I don't know why they needed to foreshadow that. It seems like there was they had more planned and they ran out of money probably is what happened. Yeah, so I'm going to channel my inner David Spade and say I liked it better the first time when it was called Equilibrium. Yeah, um, I did like that about this movie, and I, I assume the book also, in that there was a reason for why they were doing what they were doing. And the bad guys did think of themselves as the good guys as brainwashed and as horrifically single-minded and stupid as they were, because they didn't differentiate between ideas in their head and ideas that just happened to be written down on a piece of paper. Like, they were still talking to media, and they were still talking to each other, so they were still trading ideas. They just didn't want to do it on a larger scale in a written form, or just only allowable thought. But I did like the idea that, you know, ideas, you know, problem ideas, you know, you need to save yourself from from bad ideas. So we need, you know, bad ideas cause wars and problems and destruction and whatever. And it's not true. I mean, it's really dumb. But I did like the fact that they even had some sort of justification for it. Right. And And they were lauded. They were lauded as heroes. And and even the uh, news media was like, our firemen will defend our democracy. Yeah. And, you know, make make everything safe. Like it was all uh, about making things safe and palatable to the various interest groups, like the, the quote unquote, you know, victim classes who were offended by something over here. So that got banned. And then, oh, this group over here got offended by something. So now that gets banned. And you just keep going around in this vicious cycle of, okay, eventually everything's going to upset somebody. So right. Everything gets banned. Yeah. If you're constantly banning things that you find offensive, then you're right. I mean, there's no end to things that people can find offensive because you can be offended by the truth. You can be offended by lies. You can be offended by the natural world. So yeah, there's no there's no limit. But I wanted to ask you, Daniel, because this movie does kind of make the argument, even though it's done by the bad guys. So really, the movie's making the opposite argument. But, you know, for funsies, let's entertain the idea that these guys have a point. So there's a guy named, he's a very history, a very famous figure in history, unfortunately. He goes by the name of Karl Marx. And he had he had some ideas. He put them together with a guy named Engels, and he worked off some previous philosophers, but his ideas really kind of took hold with him. And he wrote a couple of books, and they were responsible. You know, I'm you know, of course, I believe in self ownership. So you know, just because an idea is presented to you, you're still responsible for your actions. So it's not to say that the Communist Manifesto then therefore you know killed itself, killed people. I'm not saying that, of course. I'm saying that the idea of communism generated by Marx inspired people like Stalin and Mao to then go and kill millions of people. Okay, so I just want to be clear. But would the world be better off? And of course, this is an impossible question to ask, but for funsies. Um, would you advocate, Daniel, that every time a, a, a copy of the Communist Manifesto was printed, let's say, let's say every time it was printed back in the day during Marx's lifetime, you bought them up and then you burned those copies, just burned them. And of course, he's going to make a good living and he'll be fine, but his ideas would never spread. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not asking you if you endorse, you know, violence. You're talking about voluntary trade. 
you benefit because you're getting rid of the ideas off the market. He benefits by selling his ideas to you. <clears throat> Everybody's happy. But would you advocate doing that? Well, no. I mean, he'd have a, a the best customer in the world. <laughs> Every book I produce, you're going to buy it and burn it. <laughs> I'll just produce books all day long, every day. You sure would. But beyond that, uh, no, I think that uh, the ideas and the concepts, I mean, it's often said that there are no original ideas, and I don't believe that's necessarily true. But an idea and concept as easy to be get suckered into as socialism, communism, I think would have sprung forth uh, with Marx or without eventually. And there, there were other types of socialists uh, that predate Marx, if I recall. So, you know, the idea that uh, you're owed something by someone else, um, the idea that uh, everyone should be forced into altruism, the idea that we should all provide for each other but need, you know, be compelled to do so. I don't think that those are necessarily like far-reaching ideas that wouldn't have been discovered by someone else, you know. So I think it would have been ineffective, to say the least, and I wouldn't advocate it for it. I think that the best solution for something like that is to inoculate and to debunk, you know, take on the arguments, take on the ideas and show where they're wrong and why they're wrong. And um, I'd rather, you know, advocate for that, obviously. Okay, so you think the bad guys in this movie are just completely wrong. You think any kind of censorship is just a fool's errand. Is that correct? Well, that feels like a, a trap type question, but yeah, we'll, we'll run with that. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that any idea should be able to see the light of day and, and be considered. I mean, certainly things are offensive, and that's one of the points that Bradbury's making here is that eventually you get your own uh, enslavement, right? It's the people clamoring for safe spaces, right? They want to be protected and be safe and happy. And so all of these ideas that upset them and anger them are abolished and destroyed. And I think one of the comments in, in the film was that they went from nearly 8,000 languages in the world down to, what, eight? Something like that. And that reminds me of uh, the move to go to a, a world language of Esperanto. And I think Bradbury's commentary and some of his quotes related is that if you can't use language and you can't write, then you can't think. And so then it's easier to be controlled. And he was, I know that he wrote this like around the time of McCarthyism and also the concepts of consumerism being a bad thing, like the Galbraithian uh, advertisers going to compel you to, to buy something against your will because they, they have brainwashing techniques or something like that. Um, so where, where am I running with this? Um, I think that he's, he's basically saying that the consumer, the masses, clamoring for safety for themselves are going to end up enslaving everyone. I think that's kind of his argument here. Sounds like a fairly modern point he's making. I mean, it seems like something that was just as true then as it is now. Oh, even more so. Um, I have a quote. I mean, he died about, what, five, six years ago. And I don't know when this quote is from, but he says, I foresaw political correctness 43 years ago, whereas back then I wrote about the tyranny of the majority. Today, I combine that with the tyranny of the minorities. These days, you have to be careful of both. They both want to control you. And I say both bunches, whether you're a majority or minority, bug off to hell with anybody who wants to tell me what to write. Their society breaks down into subsections of minorities who then, in effect, burn books by banning them. All this political correctness that's rampant on campuses is BS. You can't fool around with the dangerous notion of telling a university what to teach and what not to. And the irony, the irony of, of his novel, Fahrenheit 451, was that it was banned in several schools and, and other areas. Uh, I think for two uh, different awesome. reasons. One was because there was a taking the Lord's name in vain uh, or, or the burning of the Bible. That was a problem. And then um, all, all the swear words. And there was actually a second version of the book that was highly edited. That was the censored version and was supposedly safe for schools. And then uh, after that, that became the only one that was being published. And people started to compare like the old version to the new version. They're like, wait, what's going on here? Why can't I find the one with all the hells and the dams in it? I do got to say that I did catch the vapors several times while watching this movie. I almost fainted multiple times. I'm very sensitive when it comes to, to bad words, Daniel. So you have to watch yourself with me. So I'm glad, glad they got this evil, evil book, protected themselves, the, the little safe spaces from these, these evil words. Yeah, but that was a, that was a very good question. That was a very good question. Now, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh-oh. So the opening of the film, and I know we're already 20 minutes into the episode here, is a Kafka quote. It is often better to be in chains than to be free. And then it morphs into another quote from the Bill of Rights. That, I, this doesn't sound familiar to me, but it says the Bill of Rights, quote, it is better to be happy than free. What do you think of both of these quotes? Well, you're asking, you know, an anarcho-capitalist, a hardcore libertarian, a self-ownership 
psychopath. <laughs> You know, um, so I'm absolutely on board. I mean, if I, I, I think that there is some kind of joy you can get in servitude. There is joy you can get in servitude by, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people that um, confuse the idea of serving your fellow man, because capitalism is all about serving your fellow man, done freely. But, you know, a, a communist will come along and say, well, you're clearly not free, because this is, you're being coerced into serving somebody. This is slavery. And the point of clarification is freely, you mean of their own will, not that without money. Yes, of your own will. Now I've been derailed, and I don't know what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> damn it, Daniel. It's Why better to be it? happy than to be free. It is often better to be in chains than to be free. So some people are satisfied with chains. Yeah, there's a certain safety in chains. There's absolutely a certain safety in the idea that somebody will look out for you. I mean, there's that famous quote, I think, what is it, Franklin? Those who trade liberty for safety deserve neither, something like that. I totally butchered that. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, there's a certain, certain, you know, you feel like you're you're in the fetal position and someone's just taking care of you and you don't have to worry about things. There's a certain sort of happiness in that. Something's being taken care of for you. There's definitely some kind of comfort in that because freedom can be scary. Oh no, what am I going to do? I don't have food to eat. I got to figure something out. Oh no. I've got to make a friend. I've got to make connections. I've got to provide value to somebody in order to make a living. Oh, no. There isn't just some daddy or mommy to give me a handout. Oh, no. That, that's kind of scary. But it's also, you know, it's also invigorating. It's, it's, it's what life is all about. It's truly living. You're not just some child that is looking for a handout because you need somebody to take care of you and wipe your dities. You are uh, an adult live human being who is taking on the world, who is confident in their own abilities, in their own mind, to not only take care of yourself, but take care of others and provide value and to, and I've run out of ideas. Okay, but you're so, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure you probably have points of motion. I mean, do I agree with those quotes? No, I'll take freedom every time. But I know that the majority of people who, I mean, if we're going to be honest about this, like 90-some percent of the planet lean socialists, have some socialist ideas, some socialist leanings, even people who claim to be, you know, like classic liberals or conservatives, they still believe in some sort of socialism. So the ones that don't are very, very radical, very few in number. And um, so, yeah, we're in the super minority, but, you know, we're used to it. Individuals are the ultimate minority. So I want to hear your take on it, though, Daniel. Well, I liked a lot about what you said, and I have a few things to jump off of, but I, too, strongly disagree with both of these quotes, and though many people may prefer it, uh, and unfortunately, as they prefer it, they enslave themselves and the rest of us, because it, it, when, when they desire these chains rather than being free, it's not just for themselves, it's for everyone, and they end up shooting themselves in the foot because it's the ones who aren't afraid of being free, or that's not the right way to say it, like, I'm sure that, that those who are facing the how I'm going to do this, you have to almost overcome this fear and adversity to be able to create. But it's really just a small percentage of people who actually need to be entrepreneurial and take on the uh, that route of discovery and progress that everyone else benefits from. You know, being an entrepreneur isn't for everybody. And it doesn't take everybody to be one to get a better standard of living. But when they when the masses can enslave themselves and the minority, then they end up preventing the minority who would have gone out and done something productive, advanced things, created technology, done things that are going to improve their lives. They end up losing out overall, and it's very unfortunate. For sure, yeah. Um, do you want to get into criticisms of this world yet, or do you want to talk about some other stuff first? Well, I have one other point to make before we get further into the film, because I want to talk about Bradbury's um, angle on why he writes fantasy and science fiction. And according to him, Fahrenheit 451 is his only science fiction film or um, novel. Everything else is fantasy. Okay. And he draws Sounds a distinction good. between the impossible and the possible. Science fiction is possible, and later in life, he said Fahrenheit 451 basically became true. Everything else sure. he writes is fantasy. <laughs> right. No, yeah. That's a good distinction to make. All right, so here's his quote. The way to teach in this world is to pretend you're not teaching. Science fiction offers the chance to pretend to look the other way while teaching. Science fiction is also a great way to pretend you are writing about the future when in reality you are attacking the recent past and present. You can criticize communists, racists, fascists, and any other clear and present danger. 
and they can't imagine you are writing about them. I love that quote. Yeah, that's, it is a beautiful quote because uh, they everybody can find something in there to you know in 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 fiction to apply it to their own lives, but rarely do they find it as a form of self criticism. So yeah, I can imagine some county reading this and going, yeah, look at those people burning books. It's just the worst. But then they don't see their own ideology being under attack. You know, people don't people don't have a lot of good self-reflection skills. Not too many people do. But yeah, I love the idea of, well, I'm doing it myself, of using fiction as a way to teach and entertain at the same time. I mean, you don't want to pick up a book and just be lectured at. You want to be entertained. And if you can slip in the lesson and, and have the person not even realize it, then that's perfect. It's like a stealth stealth attack. Spoilers, everyone listening to the show. That's what we're trying to do right here. It is. <laughs> We've been outed. Well, sometimes we do it far more overtly than other times. But yeah, that's what you do. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta wrap that medicine in in sugar, and it'll go down easier. Yeah, when I was a kid, and I had you know some illness or whatever, and and I had to take antibiotics or other pills uh, every now and again, and my grandfather would hide them in strawberries because I really liked strawberries. He called me the strawberry crook because I would go out in the yard and pick the strawberries that were ripe. So he'd hide these pills in there because I wasn't able to swallow them otherwise. And I would, uh, I'd always discover them and not be able to swallow them. But anyway, beside the point, uh, well, actually to the point, yeah, sometimes you got to sugarcoat it. Stick it in a strawberry. That's right. Stick it in a strawberry. People (laughs) will swallow it. Phrasing. All right, so I also got a whole bunch of other Orwellian stuff in here. Like, I wrote down a bunch of quotes. Happiness is truth, freedom is choice, self is strength. And they're doing this, like, school assembly where they're telling all the kids, like, hey, we're going to, by the time you're grown up, all these books are going to be gone. You won't even know what a book is. And they yeah, got the kids all I, hyped up and so excited. And it's total indoctrination, and it's scary. Super indoctrination. I mean, the kids, when they show up, they just show a pretend book. Everybody boos and hisses. And then when they light it on fire, everybody cheers. Because, you know, that, that book is scary, but it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I know Bradbury was using it as, you know, a metaphor and whatnot. You can't be perfectly – no no piece of fiction is perfect. He was just trying to illustrate a point. But, I mean, if you want to dissect it, uh, these people are even stupider because, like I said before, they don't differentiate between ideas. So an idea is dangerous if it's spoken? Who knows? The movie doesn't address that. It's only when it's written down is it dangerous. Is it I – mean, but anyway um, – I want to address this one criticism that I don't think is a – it's not a fair criticism because, like we said, this book is about – and the movie is about you know, trying to teach and it's trying to make a point. But for funsies, I like to dissect movies based on economics from time to time. And this movie, I, it made me wonder just how in the hell this society would compete in the world because this is like the United States, right? And it's in the future. And this country has no way to innovate. It reminded me very much of like Mao's China or Pol Pot's Cambodia, where they're essentially demonizing and eliminating any kind of intellectuals, anybody who is, knows anything about anything. They, at one point in the movie, they talk about these people, you know, they're eels, people that read, and how they take your jobs and steal your tax money, and how they're just like this, you know, drain on society or whatever. They're just demonized for being, you know, intelligent. And this country would be North Korea. It would get out-competed. These countries, historically and as a necessity, have to control people's movement. So, you know, you can't just, like, have open borders when you're one of these super totalitarian, crazy commie countries. So North Korea, you know, you have to, like, risk your life to escape it. Because... You just do, because if you if everybody could just leave, there wouldn't be, it would just be a big empty space. Yeah, no but, one's taking a, a raft of milk jugs from Florida to Cuba. It's the other way around. Right, it's, it's the other way around. But uh, so, so to illustrate this point, to say that, you know, the countries that are horrifically oppressive in thought and in freedom, which is essentially the same thing, they just can't compete because you wouldn't be able to innovate. Now, you might be able to get along for a while in the technology you do have, but in most communist countries and other places like this that are super restrictive on ideas, you just, you just, you just fail. So currently, in the, the most recent um, figures for North Korea and South Korea, two essentially identical countries. And North Korea is about the same size as South Korea. Maybe South Korea is a little bit bigger, but not by much. Have essentially the same natural resources. 
But there's one thing that South Korea has that North Korea does not have, is is vastly much more improved economic freedom. Vastly. They don't necessarily censor ideas horrifically, and they, you know, you can have a business in South Korea, and South Korea produces cars, electronics, all sorts of things. And the 2013, South Korea had, and I know GDP is a house of cards, it's a a made-up number on top of built on more other made-up numbers, but still... They can't be that far off when you're comparing two different countries on the same bullshit metric. But South Korea has 36 times the GDP of North Korea. 36 times. The numbers were something like North Korea had like 33 billion and South Korea was like 1.2 trillion. It's not even close. Economic freedom is... So, yeah, I mean, you just have to... It would have to be a totalitarian country that super controls its people and super propagandizes its people like they do in the movie, but you wouldn't have, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have like a porous like Canadian border or a Mexican border because people would just be like wrestling in a sinking ship. Because when you are super suddenly oppressed in your own country, you know, people can leave. People can get up and move and they will go to places where there are lands of opportunity. Once upon a time, the United States was a land of opportunity. It still is relatively, but people came here in droves for the economic opportunity and the relative freedom that this land provided relative to their homelands. And uh, that would occur in the future in a world like this. And it's not addressed in the book, in the movie, but I just thought it would be fun to point out for the show that, uh, yeah, there, these, these, um, these places and these um, dystopian futures are possible, and they exist actually in places here, like in modern campus life. But, um, you know, they, I don't think that these situations are tenable per se, in the real world. They, they, but this movie does serve as an excellent like, teaching point. It, it makes an excellent point, but it's not necessarily a realistic point. Let me just, I'll finish my rant with there. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And essentially, this is similar to the B movie where Jerry Seinfeld's character got what he wanted and it ended up being disaster. This movie, Fahrenheit 451, is similar to if the SGW types who are on the campuses trying to shout down speech and inhibit ideas get their way. Yeah. This is the and continuation he, of that. Yeah, and even as explicitly said in the movie, right? They said, um, you know, they found such and such book offensive, so we burned it. You know, then the feminists found this book offensive. He actually says the word feminist. So I thought it seemed like this movie was throwing shade at the current, you know, SJW slash campus culture, which I, I, I truly did enjoy. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, um, the nine, they kept talking about that. Was that the like black market Internet they kept referring to? Could be. I wasn't exactly sure. They're, they threw a bunch of terms at you and they didn't quite explain them all. I mean, you got the idea of what an eel was, but you didn't know exactly, I suppose. Any, an eel was just any kind of. It was almost an allegory for also um, like immigrants, I guess, because you know it was like you're taking your jobs. Yeah, yeah, they became the other, and I think it was anyone who was being punished, like they were getting sentenced, and their um, fingerprints were burned off, and they were given a certain number of years of having restricted uh, travel and no identity. And my thoughts there were, that's ostracism, man. That's like one of the most powerful deterrents there is. That's an amazing punishment, and it would be very similar to what one would conceive of in a you know, pure uh, libertarian society where people's reputations meant everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't show um, people like going to jail. They just talked about being essentially ostracized, being a non-person for a certain amount of time. And yeah, it'd be similar to being, yeah, a person, a persona non grata. You know, your your reputation is mud here. So either you need to bail in order to survive because no one's going to work with you, except on the, you know, like in the, like scummy circles, like, you know, you can only get a job in, like, Congress or something, you know, just real garbage people. Or, yeah, toe the line and be a good citizen. And we've talked about this in the past with, like, the Sesame Credit thing and, you know, on a, in a free market, you know, in a true voluntary society where, you know, people aren't coerced or violently attacked. Um, this would be, a, you know, one of the more marketable solutions for punishment in terms of, you know, people that do things that are not appreciated. And yeah, like you said, it's a super powerful tool that since we are social animals, we would react super, super strongly to that. You know, I mean, what, what would you do? All of a sudden you couldn't shop at the local supermarket. All of a sudden you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to associate with certain people anymore. You wouldn't have certain friends. You would, you'd be stuck in this kind of underground world that you may not 
particularly enjoy. Yeah, and I think there's some level of that. I mean, it's like Yelp for the individual. And you already get that in some respects with like ratings on Airbnb as a guest or as a host. You can get rated also as an Uber driver or Uber passenger. So there's feedback based on your behavior, right? And, Boo, and, Uber. Boo. I just Uber. read headlines. I, all I know is that Uber is evil. Sorry. All Uber, Uber driver drivers, does. all they do is... <laughs> all Uber drivers do is they kill people. That's all I know. That's the latest one, yeah. But but you, we're starting to see that kind of a thing spring forth in the market. So you, yeah. you get a reputation that precedes you, and people decide whether they want to pick you up in their car or if they want to ride in your car or if they want to rent you their place or et cetera, et cetera, and on down the line. And you're right. It's, very, um, it's a fine line between a voluntary market spontaneous produced method of that versus a top-down control method of that that comes from, um, you know, like the Chinese government with Sesame, Sesame Credit. Right. I, yeah, I actually and, and, saw a headline the other day that um, I want to say some number of millions of airline or train tickets have been denied in China based on the low ratings of Sesame Credit. Like millions of people have been prevented from travel as a result. Wow. And I thought that they were just voluntarily doing it right now and that they were going to bring make it mandatory later. But have they already made it mandatory? I don't know. Yeah, that's read beyond the headlines. And that's one of Bradbury's other criticisms is <laughs> everyone just reads headlines these days. <laughs> well, to be fair and in my defense, a lot of the articles are written by really dumb people, usually kind of like tardy lefty people. And it's just painful kind of to read a lot of times. I mean, you know, some of the some articles are fairly fair, but more and more. It seems like tabloid journalism. So I usually just do sometimes read the headlines, um, but I just assume that the headline is is some kind of you know spin propaganda thing or some kind of ridiculous take on the actual story. That's usually my default. Because who has the time? Who has the time to read all these articles? But I do take his point, and it is it is important to uh, get as, be as informed as you can. But you know, a lot of times there's also a, a, the danger of being overly informed. And I mean by that, you know, you spend way too much time just being informed about whatever and kind of like not cleaning your room and, you know, kind of letting your own stuff fall away and really, you know, when spending a lot of time worrying about stuff that you can't affect, you can kind of fall into that trap. And I think I did that a fair amount when I was back listening to a lot of like Alex Jones and stuff like that. You can really get into the trap of kind of like pessimism porn where you are just kind of worried about the next thing or that sort of thing. And then less about, you know, getting your own house in order. Right. And then everything in the news is a sign of something, right? Sure. Everything is is a reason to be concerned and be worried. And that would follow you back into this wanting to seek safety. (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. um, you know, the, the, the point of the, the movie here is, in the novel, I believe, is that the people demanded that the world become like this. And I think that the, the, the moral is, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, I would agree with that, for sure. I, 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 the movie doesn't specifically make the argument that, you know, the tyranny of the majority. But I think you can suss out that lesson from it. Because if, you know, who else would it be but the majority that is clamoring for this? Now, currently today, I would say that the loony left has a disproportionate voice in America, but they are still outnumbered by rational people, or at least, you know, fairly rational people. Um, So I don't know if they're necessarily the biggest voting bloc, but they do have a lot of influence, and they are increasingly, you know, taking up spots in the media, as this show has demonstrated with various themes in movies and TV, and all you have to do is pick up a Go to a website, you know, and chances are you're reading some lefty whine about something. And the problem is, like you just said, that these people tend to see government as a good thing and to beg and ask and plead the government, as we have noticed from, say, just most recently, just off the top of my head, like the David Hogg types who have a bad thing happen and they complain and whine to government to solve it for them, and all the government does, all the only tool government has in its arsenal is a stick. All they can do is use violence to attack people. But they think that government is some sort of benevolent fairies that can wave a magic wand and make these bad, bad, bang, bang, kill, kill guns go away. And I'm sorry, all you can do is consolidate the weapons. You cannot eliminate them entirely unless it's, I don't even know, like 
if you got some sort of a super robot with a stick and he goes around and just beats people on the head with a gun and he's bulletproof, maybe? I, who knows? But you know what I'm saying. In the real world, in the real world, the people with the guns would fight back. So all you can do is consolidate them into smaller and smaller groups. And all you can do that is violently. Um, there's a fun story where they have these gun buyback programs. And what you can do, and there's a guy that does this, is he goes and he makes guns out of like old pipes and just like terrible, just like, you know, for a couple of bucks, he'll go to a scrapyard and buy some like pipes and old rusted pieces of crap. And he'll, you know, put it together in the shape of a gun. And I don't even think it has to work. Maybe you demonstrate it and make it show that it shoots something. Maybe so you make it that bare bones, like, yeah, it kind of shoots something. But, you know, he'll make it for like 10, 15 bucks, and then he'll go to these one of these gun buybacks and get it for like 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever they buy back for. That's just the beauty. That's just the beauty of the market, baby. A nice callback, Robert. That was your question to me about the uh, Communist Manifesto with Marx's book, you know, being the ready, ready customer of buying every copy and destroying it. That's exactly what they're doing here. And I'm sure the guy's taking that money and buying a real gun. That's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, baby. So did you have any issues with, I mean, let's talk about, I mean, we got all kinds of interesting things we've mentioned, um, but let's just talk a little bit about, I mean, would you recommend this movie? You know, would you, I mean, cause I think the movie, even though if it's not that great, I still think it has a great message and I would recommend that everybody see it. Although it does kind of follow along similar dystopian themes and similar, you know, ideas of what Orwell was trying to say and maybe Huxley. I don't know. I don't I remember. It's been a while since I read Brave New World. Um, but I mean, well, it's you, where they, well, they learn to love their servitude. Yeah. I mean, everybody's on, what is it? Soma. Everybody's taking in brave new world and everybody has the free love and they're all having babies together or whatever. And then the babies are taken from them and grown in vats or whatever. It's, 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 it's a nice vision of society, but it's, you know, anyway, um, would you recommend this film? Daniel? Well, I mean, that's, that's a, a difficult question and I'm not sure if I'm ready for the, for the end of our discussion, even though we've been, already been going almost an hour, but I you will more say you can bring it. You can bring it. Well, I will say that the film is not particularly good. Okay, good. We, but we agree it, on that. Yeah, the film is kind of garbage, actually, and I feel bad saying that because the material and the concepts that are elicited are very rich, and there's plenty to talk about, and we've only scratched the surface here. And I, I you know, our show really isn't much more than an hour, so I don't want to. Um, I, I almost don't want to leave it on the on the cutting room floor, but. I also want to keep us well, let's short. Just, well, let's let's bullet point quick. If you got some some juicy bits, let's 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 hit them hard, and we'll do them trying trying to do them quick. All right. So he talked about having um, the realization that the, the authors spend a lifetime creating, and it only takes him a moment to destroy it with very little effort. And so that's like this huge disparity in how much work goes into creating something versus destroying something. And even um, one of the women who was visited by the firemen and had this library of books in her house, she chose to die as a martyr with the books uh, in an effort to um, shock people into realizing what's happening. And then they, they dubbed over her voice and, and made her say something rather innocuous, like calling the, the firemen cowards, something like that. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other one I wanted to ask you about was the whole idea of the people memorizing books, most important books that this small group of rebels, and they had this Rain Man type kid who had memorized 13,000 books and can recall them by page and line and you can test him and everything. And that reminded me of some stories about Murray Rothbard. He could do similar things. They have notes and all the margins and everything like that. But one of the books that this small group of people, because the other, he had 13,000. Everyone else in this small group had one book to memorize and they were referred to by that name. Mm-hmm. One of the books that made the cut, The Little Red Book by Chairman Mao. Was it? Huh. I, don't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I guess I missed that part. And I did see Marks getting burned, as, as well as Bradbury, uh, during the fireman fires. Mm, nice. I saw, I saw Harry Potter get burned. <laughs> That's a dangerous book, you know. You don't, you don't, you don't want the kids going to Hogwarts. Um, but but their, their whole uh, concept of memorizing the books was this uh, collective unconscious this Jungian idea, and this was their whole crux of, of getting the knowledge out dispersed into the world, was to inject it into an animal and then spread it via the animal kingdom. So it's it's a little bit far-fetched for me. I, I sort of understand a little bit of the Jungian uh, concepts from my psychology degree. But the reason they memorized these books is because it wasn't connected to the Internet. It's totally off-grid, so it can't be found. And it's reminded me of how old minstrels would go around uh, singing stories 
to pass them down through the generations. And you can just imagine, you know, it's like a decades or generations long game of telephone. So there'd be embellishment and alterations and fish stories. Um, sure. But it, yeah, it, like, no, go ahead. Well, and, and then I was going to take that to the next level of, uh, like bit, Bitcoin and blockchain memorization of your secret code. Like you could buy a bunch of Bitcoin, travel somewhere else, have no record of it anywhere written down or electronic, just memorize the code and then you can redeem it wherever you go. Indeed. Yeah, it's um just reminds me of mankind, you know, like in our infancy and then you grow into an adult and then you grow into your elderliness and it's just essentially you, re- you regress back to your infancy. So for almost the entirety of human history, we were an oral history people. I mean, we didn't have writing for hundreds of thousands of years. So all we did was pass down oral histories. And yeah, who knows? Um, like a game of telephone, you know, I'm sure the stories grow in the telling. So what is exactly true? And um, and then, yeah, for human beings to be under horrific oppression, to regress to that, it seems to be, it seems to be a, a normal thing that human beings would do. I mean, when the mafia were, you know, under threat by the FBI, they would not write anything down. They would only speak in person. You know, they would just, you know, they would go talk on it like a public telephone because they knew that that wasn't being bugged. But they essentially became like an oral people. So, yeah, when you are under the microscope, you will do what you have to do to, you know, fight back or to survive. And, yeah, it seemed like a it seemed like a normal thing that people would do. Um, So I didn't find it unbelievable in the slightest bit. It seemed like a totally natural thing. Yeah, if your books are being read and you have no other means by which to record them, keep them in your head. It's a fairly inefficient way. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to disseminate 13,000 books out of your head at any given time or in any way, really? I mean, maybe you could transcribe them later, but then he dies at the end of the movie. <laughs> so there goes 13,000 books. Yeah, so, I wanted to ask you, what was the whole point of their plan if, spoilers everyone, um, Montag the Michael B. Jordan character, he affixes the transponder to the bird that they put this DNA, what is it called, the Omnis in there, in inside of yep. the bird. Right. And his mission for the Rebel Alliance, the Resistance, is to get him, get the boy, the 13,000 book boy, and that bird to Canada. And then at the climax of the film, there's a hole that miraculously burns through the roof of the barn, and Montag sticks the transponder onto the bird and releases the bird, and voila, his mission is accomplished. Like, what... Did they not think of this mission or this uh, solution prior to <laughs> a fire uh, and and being attacked by the uh, the SWAT team firemen? It seemed really yeah. I mean, really, ul- ultimately, all the only thing Michael Jordan does is he gets this little transponder from some locker at work. It sure seems like these. Uh, we had this issue with the um, the Blade Runner movie. Like these underground people were just waiting around. For the protagonist to do one little thing for them? What? Why? Why now? Why? Why not before? What? 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 What stopped you? What stopped you before? And why did you have to flip one of these? I mean, were they so under lock and key, so perfectly? I mean, I've seen movies like Ocean's Eleven, where where people will come up with the most elaborate schemes to rob a place. Could these people not, you know, bandy, you know, figure out how to rob this fireman place for a for a transponder, or I'm sure there's probably far easier places to get a transponder. Could they not figure that out? Uh, you're right. This seems like a really ridiculous plot thing where these people are just complete moron idiots, and it takes this conversion of a guy to come along and save them because that's their genius plan when all they could have probably done is, you know, order one off the internet. Off the nine. The ocho. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why, why did they have to flip Michael Jordan to get a transponder? That makes no sense. And initiate him by telling him to kill a fireman. Yeah, right. right. And he's just going to go do it but without taking off the guy's head. He's just going to start stabbing a guy because somebody told him to. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is pretty, pretty ham-fisted. I don't know if these flaws exist in the original story or not. But, um, yeah, this movie, it seemed like... They kind of threw it together at the last. Minute. It seemed it just it just screamed of short production cycle, including the script, which is really really strange, especially when you got you know a book to go off of. Unless these flaws exist in the original book. Uh, well, in my reading of of some of the information surrounding the novel and the story here, the the film, that some of these 
things were changed at the end, some of the liberties were taken. And so I think the releasing the bird is one of them. But I want to ask you, and we can close on this before we get into our final summary and review. How in the heck does Michael B. Jordan escaping the firemen and, and leaving them on a chase and getting into the forbidden or the black hole, like the black zone, whatever they call it, where they, they can't pick up their position. How did the firemen all of a sudden know exactly where he's going to be and beat him there? That makes no sense to me. Because the script said it. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know where it's he's going. And he's about to enter an area where we can't pick up where he is, but all of a sudden we're going to show up before him where he's going to go. <laughs> it was, it was, anyway, your uh, final summary and review, Robert. Listen, this is not a good movie. There are many, many flaws. And, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of, like, the Atlas Shrugged movies, which I have not seen. But I've also heard that they are just not, you know, well well produced. Not a lot of money. These kind of projects just don't get the mainstream money, um, which is why you really need to hide the message in a more mainstream-type project, in my opinion. I think you, you need to really sugarcoat this message more. Uh, this this book is famous, but I think that this would be, you know, if this was more of a mainstream story that really was more entertaining, um, you know, and less just like kind of heavy-handed beating it over your head with the message, kind of like Ayn Rand does, Ayn Rand does um, it would be a more popular, famous thing. Now, I know Atlas Shrugged is huge. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. But don't tell me that it doesn't just beat you over the head with the message. And like this story also beats you over the head with the message. And I think it would, they would both get more modern mainstream money and have bigger productions and better values and better success and more widespread appeal if you were to sugarcoat the message better. Now, I still think this message is important, of course, and I think you should, everyone should see it, but it's not the best vehicle for it. Like, hey, you should see this. It's a great movie. No, no, it isn't. So you really can't do that. You, all you can do is really recommend the movie like, hey, you should see this movie. It's not a great it's not a great movie, but it's got a good message. Oh, yeah, what's the message? Oh, you know, censorship of ideas is real dumb and bad. Okay, well, you could just tell me that, and I probably agree with you. <laughs> you don't need to watch a movie about it. But, you know, uh, I, I got a soft spot in my, in my heart for these kind of movies, so I, it kills me to give this movie a negative review, um, but I, I am. I mean, I'm going to give it like a, you know, a 4.5 in terms of a movie quality, but I still think it's, it's, it's an important film to see, especially if you're new to these kind of ideas. If you are well-versed, if you're like, you know, our audience, <laughs> you probably don't need to see this because yeah, what are you going to learn? But, uh, and unfortunately it's not the best ambassador to like, you know, disseminate this information. I wish it was better. I wish you could just, you know, put some kids in front of this movie and have them be entertained and then have them be like, you know, grow up to be a, you know, wary of this kind of stuff, but it isn't. So 4.5, Daniel. All right, well, I'll take your 4.5 and I'll raise it to 4.51, nice. ironically enough. <laughs> oh, I should, have, I should have made it to 4.51, shouldn't I have? Damn it. Well, uh, you, you can amend it. You can amend it. No, no, uh, no, no, no. I like that. I'll be a 4.5, you be 4.51. All right, so yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that isn't very good, but it has plenty of discussion points, and we, again, only scratch the surface. I think that we could talk for two or three more hours about this stuff, um, especially based on the notes that I have here. Uh, but we don't have time for it now. So I will say that the production value, not super good. Michael Shannon, I kept seeing Zod for Man of Steel. Michael B. Jordan, Wooden, and not a whole lot going on there. But the concept is is really good. And I'm sure that at some point in, in my lifetime, I would like to read Fahrenheit 451, Bradbury's original novel, and experience that. Because this, I feel, is probably not doing it a justice as yeah. far as how good the story might have been. So for that, you know, 4.51. And I, I too feel bad about that. I had a lot of high hopes for this. Seeing the trailers for this when we were watching Westworld, they would HBO would play a little trailer beforehand, and you'd see 30 seconds or a minute of this movie. They picked the 48 seconds, the best 48 <laughs> seconds of this movie to show you. The only good 48 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, one of those unfortunate deals. So, Neil before Zod, 4.51. All right, so we're going to wind this down here. Uh, Lastnighters.com slash 22 is the show notes and more. And we are going to do next, the 50th anniversary has come up of the original Planet of the Apes. But there are nine Planet of the Apes films. And so I think we're going to do sort of just an overall Planet of the, 
Planet of the Apes like franchise, like the property, and I use that word very loosely, uh, at our next episode. So we're going to talk about, I think, focusing sort of on the 1968 original and the most recent war uh, for the Planet of the Apes. I think that's what it's called, right? The most yep. current one? Yep. That is it. So that'll be episode 23 of the show. So do check that out. And we might have uh, a boys night out related to that uh, in the following weeks. So look at, look forward for that or to that. And yeah, baby. Uh, also check out the libertarianunion.com. And that's pretty much all we have to say. I mean, we've been going over an hour here. So thanks for sticking with us and do give us those likes, subscribes, shares, etc. cetera. Uh, if you are on the anchor.fm, do send us a message. Uh, you can do that very easily. Uh, you can send a message up to a minute long and, Send us any comments or questions, and we will attempt to incorporate them into the show and answer uh, answer them. And who knows what will happen? It'll, it might be exciting. So do, do try that out. Absolutely. Yeah, we encourage audience feedback. That would be fantastic. We, we really do love to get your feedback and respond to it. So if you're out there and you've got a point you want to make, you've got a question you want to ask, man, hit us up. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Last Nighters, lastnighters.com slash 22. Thank you very much and good night from last night. And we're going to turn some more frogs gay, uh, do a little bit of Captain Turner Overdrive after this. We're going to wind down the actual Anarchy show. I know we didn't do a whole lot of special content for you guys, but uh, Robert, you want to throw any, any bones at our uh, non-paying anarchist listeners before we get into the paid paid zone? Mm, I don't know. I could, I could rant on anything. Uh, what, what, what would you want to talk about? You know, if you want to throw your 10-minute Avengers rant here, that might be some pretty primo shit. <laughs> if you have the means, I highly recommend it. So, um, well, okay, just, if I go along yell at me or something but uh, so uh, over the past weekend or so i don't remember i didn't actually go on a weekend no i did i did i went on a saturday i went and saw three movies i saw solo i saw avengers infinity war and i saw deadpool 2 and there's stuff to talk about any of the three of the movies we could do an episode on any one of them if daniel would actually get out of his house and go watch a movie but i can't really fault him for that because i rarely do this and the really the reason the only reason i went is because i could shotgun all three of them at once so I was like, okay, I'll make the entire trip and make it worthwhile. But anyway, so Avengers Infinity War struck me as a great movie. Fantastic. Just the ultimate pinnacle of comic book type movies. And the protagonist is getting some buzz for actually being a fairly strong protagonist, which is unique of the Marvel films. Usually the, the villain is the weakest character. But in this movie, he's actually one of the stronger characters. And he's actually given a whole ton of screen time. And his motivations are made very clear. And he's given some emotional development and not necessarily any kind of character progression, but at least you understand his motivations. And and it's kind of interesting to me, and hopefully to you listening to this, to hear the kind of the feedback. Because a lot of the mainstream normie type review comic book people, because this is a change, the change in the comic books originally Thanos, 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 um, wanted to kill off like everybody in the universe because he wanted to get the attention of death, because he was in love with death. And these eternal beings in the Marvel Universe actually exist and have personalities like death and eternity and all these cosmic beings. In this movie, I think they made the change for the stronger. Um, Thanos wants to only kill off half the people, and he does so because he's a Malthusian. Malthus, Thomas Malthus, is very famous for declaring that the world is a finite place and there's only so much resources to go around so eventually people are just going to start dying and you know it's not going to be able to support all these populations so people are just going to live in squalor and whatever and it's going to get so overcrowded and it's just going to be terrible and so we just need to have population control and whatnot and it's a really dumb idea but it made for a, at least a pretty dang good villain now unfortunately Malthus has been debunked for hundreds of years like I don't know, there are probably some, there are plenty of dumb people, as evidenced by some, a YouTube video I watched, that still think this is true, so it's, it brings up a good discussion point. Malthus is wrong for many reasons. Um, one of the video, the, the YouTube video I watched, brought up this idea of carrying capacity of the Earth, and the idea that you could even come up with a number. He, he put the number at 13 billion, something like that. 
And the idea that you could even come up with a number is painfully ridiculous. Because it takes into, first of all, it's going to take into, num- into account any number of wild assumptions. But the biggest wild assumption it takes into account is that human beings don't think, that human beings don't innovate, that human beings don't solve problems. Because all it can do is say that, well, based on current modern-day technology and current modern-day resources, this is, this is the carrying capacity of the Earth, 13 billion. Well, if you had asked Malthus that question, it was probably something like 1 billion. And I don't know the exact number that he gives. I haven't read Malthus in a while. But that was before atomic energy. That was before oil was really in use. Before oil was in use, it was just some black goop that you would occasionally run into when you were digging a hole. Completely useless until technology made it a thing and made for industrialization and massively increased the carrying capacity of the earth. And so who knows what else is the world and the people are going to do to create a better world, to create more resources. We don't know the next technological advancement that's going to allow for vast amounts of wealth. Now, it's also dumb in the movie for multiple reasons, but because Thanos is getting, essentially he's getting the Infinity Gauntlet, which has all these Infinity Stones, and it allows for him to do anything he thinks of. And this has been brought up before, but I'm going to reiterate it here. He could just imagine infinite resources, or he could imagine, you know, he could just change the universe so that people don't require resources to live, or any number of solutions that don't involve murder, (laughs) murdering half the people in the universe. And at one point in the movie, he talks about, you know, what a success of murdering Gamora's homeland was. Gamora is the uh, green girl in the Guardians of the Galaxy. He's like, oh, I went back there after, you know, after having murdered half the people on the planet. And it's a paradise. Oh, people are so happy. Are they really? They, don't, they aren't just like a little bit resentful that you slaughtered half the people on the planet? Not a little bit sad that, you know, half their family is murdered? Oh, paradise. Man, I'd, I'd so much rather have this sandwich than, you know, my loved ones alive. Because I couldn't think of another way to get a sandwich. But I can just magically produce, you know, these beloved family members. And nobody calls him out on it in the movie. There, he's talking to, like, Tony Stark and Doctor Strange, like these genius people. Doctor Strange is this genius surgeon slash genius mystic guy. And Tony Stark is this genius, you know, inventor, scientist guy. And they're not aware of Malthus or his ideas. They're not aware of the arguments against them that totally debunk them. I mean, the idea that human beings destroy more than they create is completely ridiculous. Because if that was true, there wouldn't be anything here. There wouldn't be any stuff around. But human beings create more than they destroy. Human beings are net producers and gross producers. So you benefit from there being more people around. You wouldn't want half the people on the planet to get slaughtered. Like when the the Black Death went through and mowed through Europe, you don't get, you, yeah, you get, you know, suddenly reduced property value. Sure, there are less people. Sure, you get more employment. Yeah, there's, you know, wages are going to increase because there's less competition for labor. Sure, rents are going to go down. Great. But what you don't get, you don't see. It's the seen versus unseen. You don't get all the innovation that those people would have provided. You don't get the production that people would have provided. Like I just said, they're net producers and they're gross producers. You wouldn't get the production from those people that died. The half of the planet that he wipes out could have been the the Einsteins and the Teslas and the Newtons and the Fords and the, you know, you name it, the Jobses and the Gateses of the world. You don't know that you're losing out on all these things that would have improved your life. All you know is that now you you don't have a loved one. Now you've got to do more work to survive because you don't have all these services that you used to use. you got to pay more for certain services because there's less competition, because there's a greater demand for labor, so labor costs go up. It's a massive economic loss when there's a whole big die-off of people. When anybody dies, you lose their economic benefit. You lose the, anything that they would have ever created or ever produced. So these people that are like these environmentalists that think that, you know, there's too many people in the world, probably most of the people are like, they live in like crowded cities. And they're like, wow, geez, there's just so many people here. There's just too many people on this planet. I just can't get to the store and back in less than an hour. It's terrible. Well, what they don't know, or they don't realize, is that a lot of those people live in those cities because they are artificially incentivized to do so. So oftentimes through government. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, through things like rent control 
and other you know public transit systems and there are numerous reasons that people want to live in those kind of places for the the perks the free perks that would not necessarily be there or they would take different forms under in a, in a free private property based society but um anyway so that's basically my rant um i think i covered most of the things i wanted to say um yeah it's a good movie though check it out one of the best uh, marvel movies ever made uh, it doesn't hold your hand, so if you haven't watched any of the other Marvel movies, you might not know who these characters are and what they're doing and whatnot, but uh, they're some of the damn coolest scenes. <laughs> Had a real good time. Had a real good time. High recommendation from me. But go in knowing that uh, Thanos' ideas are they're real dumb, and uh, it would have been better for my... I, I appreciated the change to the Malthusian argument, if only the um, you know the normies they'll they'll talk about it and go, well, he's a psychopath. He wants to kill everybody. Good. I'm glad you see that he's a bad guy because he wants to kill people. Thank you. At least you're not one of these crazy people who goes, well, he's got a point now, doesn't he? We should really just start killing everybody off. I mean, I, to those people, I say, well, start with yourself. You know, prove that you're a real true believer. I mean, there was a guy who like set himself on fire in uh, Central Park not too long ago, I think a couple months ago. He was a true believer, environmentalist type guy. At least he, you know, at least he lived his, his ideology. I'll, I'll give him that much. So, Daniel, if you're still there, I think I'm finished with my rant. All right, well, super good stuff. That probably should be behind the paywall, but we'll leave it in for our anarchist friends. And I will mention that if Malthus was right, per, per your uh, point being made here, then the firemen would have had nothing to destroy right. in Fahrenheit 451. But that's the kind of genius, awesome content you can get behind the paywall, just so you know, everybody. That's right. And uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do the Kathleen Turnover Drive tonight because I'm about ready to get into my Rothbard Roundtable nerd group. It's a weekly economics uh, discussion I have with a group of friends. We listen to a lecture and do some readings. Uh, it's usually like a uh, Rothbard or Mises or Hoppe or Tom Woods or something like that. And then we do a discussion. So that's a really good time, and I'm about ready to get into that. So let's say goodnight for... Our Actual Anarchy audience, um, this is episode, I believe, 79 of the show, actualanarchy.com slash 79 for the show notes and more. I do appreciate you guys joining us, and uh, we will be back with Planet of the Eights next week, and it will be just kind of an overall, like, a, what do they call that, a um, eponymous, or is that like a self-named? We're just going to talk about the, the concept of the Planet of the Eights and focusing on the first and the most recent film. Hey, at least he's a you know, libertarian type. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape! be good come back for that all right well thank you guys and uh, peace out maximum freedom i love you all the chipmunks C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do